This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 115 Ted Bundy In the calm and unassuming suburbs of Philadelphia, on a chilly November day in 1946, at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers, Theodore Robert Bundy was born into a world that would one day be devastated by him. This wasn't known at the time, of course. If you had asked his mother, Eleanor, she would tell you that little Theodore was a glowing, happy baby that would only bring joy to her life. Little did she, or anyone else for that matter, know that this seemingly ordinary addition to their family would grow up to become one of the most infamous serial killers in American history. Ted Bundy's early years were altogether unremarkable. Marked by an average childhood in a middle-class family with one caveat. His mother worked as a secretary, while he was raised to believe that his grandparents were his parents, and that his mother was his older sister a lie told to shield him from the shame of being born out of wedlock. The identity of his father would remain an unanswered question his entire life. Despite the family's attempts to provide Ted with a stable upbringing, it quickly became obvious that he exhibited disturbing signs of extreme mental illness. As a child, he was utterly and openly fascinated by violence, and often subjected small animals to torturous experiments. These early indicators of psychopathy would only become more worrisome and more pronounced as he grew older. In high school, Bundy appeared to be a charming and intelligent young man. He excelled academically and displayed a talent for blending in with his peers. But beneath this veneer of normalcy lay a darkness that few could fathom. As he entered adulthood, Bundy's life appeared to be on an upward trajectory. He attended the University of Washington and developed a reputation as a competent, charismatic, and good-looking young man. He was even involved in local politics and worked for a crisis hotline, which allowed him to gain the trust of his community. However, behind the scenes, Bundy's sinister fantasies were escalating. He began to stalk women meticulously planning his attacks. His charming facade allowed him to approach his victims with ease, feigning injuries or asking for assistance with his car. Once he had gained their trust, he would strike, incapacitating them with a quick blow to the head before bundling them into his vehicle. Bundy's methodical approach and his ability to change his appearance and demeanor made him a cunning predator. 
He often used fake names and employed various ruses to lure his victims into his clutches. As his list of victims grew, so did his audacity. He would sometimes return to the scenes of his crimes to posthumously defile the bodies of his victims through necrophilia and extreme mutilation. The true extent of Bundy's depravity would remain hidden from the public for years, as he continued to elude law enforcement and evade capture. But eventually, his arrogance would lead to his downfall. In August of 1975, Bundy was pulled over by Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger, a Salt Lake City suburb, after he observed Bundy cruising a residential area in his Volkswagen Beetle during the pre-dawn hours, and fleeing at high speed after seeing the patrol car. He noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats, and searched the car. Inside, the officers discovered a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items that they assumed to be burglary tools. Bundy was arrested, and soon linked to a series of unsolved disappearances and murders across several states. The news of Bundy's capture sent shockwaves through the nation, as the charismatic young man who had once been a promising member of society was revealed to be a cold-blooded killer. The ensuing trial would captivate the nation, and shed light on the horrifying details of Bundy's crimes. As the nation watched in morbid fascination, Ted Bundy's trial began in the summer of 1976. The courtroom was filled to capacity with spectators, eager to catch a glimpse of the charismatic killer who had managed to evade justice for so long. Bundy's defense team, led by the skilled attorney John Henry Brown, portrayed him as a charming and affable young man who couldn't possibly be responsible for the heinous crimes he was accused of. Bundy himself decided to act as his own co-counsel, a move that would allow him to maintain some semblance of control over his narrative. Throughout the trial, Bundy maintained his calm and composed demeanor, often cross-examining witnesses with an unsettling confidence. He used his intelligence and charisma to manipulate the proceedings, attempting to cast doubt on the evidence and sow seeds of confusion among the jurors. Despite his efforts, the evidence against Bundy was overwhelming. The prosecution presented a mountain of incriminating details, from eyewitness accounts to physical evidence found at various crime scenes. The courtroom listened in horror as survivors of his attacks recounted their terrifying ordeals, detailing how Bundy had lured them into his car before subjecting them to unimaginable horrors. One of the most chilling moments of the trial occurred when Bundy unexpectedly announced his engagement to Carol Ann Boone, a woman he had met years earlier. He managed to convince her of his innocence and won her unwavering loyalty. In a bizarre turn of events, they were married in the courtroom, with Bundy acting as his own officiant. It was a shocking display of his ability to manipulate his surroundings, no matter where he found himself. Despite Bundy's efforts to control the narrative, the overwhelming evidence led to his conviction on multiple counts of murder. He was sentenced to death, 
and the nation breathed a sigh of relief, believing that the reign of terror had finally come to an end. But Bundy was not finished. From his prison cell, he began to plot his escape, demonstrating his cunning once again. In June of 1977, he managed to escape from the Glenwood Springs, Colorado Jail by fashioning a makeshift key and squeezing through a small hole in his cell's ceiling. For several days, Bundy eluded capture, traveling across the country, committing additional murders along the way. The authorities launched a massive manhunt, and Bundy's face was plastered on television screens and wanted posters nationwide. Despite his desperate attempts to evade capture, he was eventually apprehended in February of 1978 in Pensacola, Florida, after being pulled over for driving a stolen vehicle. The nation was once again riveted by the dramatic capture of the man who had become a symbol of evil. Bundy's return to prison was marked by heightened security measures, including constant surveillance and restraints. But he continued to manipulate those around him, earning the trust of prison staff and fellow inmates. He even made a shocking confession to his crimes, providing chilling details of his murders to investigators. However, Bundy's confessions were often vague, and he reveled in maintaining an air of mystery around the true extent of his crimes. As the years passed, Bundy's execution date drew closer, and he continued to play mind games with those who sought to understand the depths of his depravity. He hinted at additional victims, and offered tantalizing but incomplete information about their whereabouts, further tormenting the families of his victims. On January 24, 1989, Ted Bundy's reign of terror truly came to a gruesome end. He was executed in the electric chair at Florida State Prison, finally bringing closure to the families of his victims, and an end to one of the most chilling chapters in American criminal history. Yet Bundy's dark legacy continued to haunt the minds of those who had followed his gruesome crimes. In the years following his death, Bundy's case became a subject of fascination for true crime enthusiasts, psychologists, and criminologists. They sought to understand the mind of a man who had been able to project an image of charm and normalcy while committing heinous acts of violence and depravity. One of the enduring mysteries surrounding Bundy was the true number of his victims. Although he confessed to 30 murders, experts believe the actual number may be much higher. Bundy often used deception and manipulation to avoid detection and his ability to change his appearance and modus operandi made it difficult for authorities to connect all the dots. The legacy of Ted Bundy extended beyond his gruesome crimes and his manipulative tactics. His case had a profound impact on criminal profiling and law enforcement techniques. His ability to blend into society and charm his victims underscored the importance of recognizing that serial killers could come in many forms challenging the stereotypical image of a disheveled loner. Psychologists and criminologists delved into Bundy's psyche, attempting to unravel the complex factors that contributed to his development as a serial killer. While no single explanation could account for his actions, it became clear that a combination of genetic predisposition, childhood experiences, 
and personal choices played a role in shaping his path of destruction. Bundy's case also highlighted the limitations of the criminal justice system in dealing with serial killers. His escapes and manipulation of the legal process exposed vulnerabilities that needed to be addressed. In the wake of his reign of terror, many states reevaluated their prison security measures and procedures for handling high-risk inmates. Despite his death, Bundy's name continued to make headlines as new revelations and theories emerged. In the years following his execution, a number of books, documentaries, and films were produced about his life and crimes, perpetuating the public's morbid fascination with the man behind the mask, the devil hiding beneath his wildly charming and charismatic personas. The case raised questions about the nature of evil itself, challenging our understanding of human behavior and the capacity for darkness that resides within us all. In the end, Ted Bundy left a trail of pain, suffering, and horror in his wake. His crimes shattered the lives of his victims and their families, leaving scars that would never fully heal. Through the study of his life and crimes, we are left to contemplate the capacity for evil that exists in the world and the enduring fascination with the dark and inexplicable aspects of human nature. We are left hoping that a silver lining can be found in the examination of this man, who appears to have been the personification of evil. Did his case facilitate the learning of truly vital lessons by our criminal justice system? Can we still today learn something about how better to protect ourselves from monsters who manage to hide in plain sight? Should we as a society spend just a little more time looking inward, and considering our penchant for morbid fascination and the elevation of these the blackest marks on the record of humanity. Regardless, the name Ted Bundy lives on in infamy, forever synonymous with the depths of human depravity, forever inextricably linked to the enduring quest to understand the mind of a killer. Does true evil exist? If so... It almost never looks the way that we expect it to. It is so often found lurking beneath a veneer of disarming charm and overwhelming charisma. But whether it lurks in the shadows, or greets you with a smile and a firm handshake, you can count on the fact that it is there, waiting to strike, when least expected. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. Scared me a little there. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to, you know, give you the vibe that I was going to go into it kind of nice and calm. Yeah. And just let her rip. Just blast it out. Yeah. Yeah. Again. You nailed it. as, uh, As often is the case... Those of you at home or listening, wherever you're listening, you don't get to hear that part. (laughs) (laughs) Never. (laughs) Oh, man. So, uh, old Ted. Old Ted Bundy. (laughs) Old Ted. Yeah. Yep. That's where we're at. The Bunders. (laughs) Teddy Bunders. Um, (sighs) Second serial killer. Yeah. Yeah, listen. Um, I mean... You know, I think uh, 
I think most people are are familiar at least with the you know with Ted Bundy and you know kind of yeah his story and everything. But uh, yeah, we we're gonna we're gonna deep dive it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And uh, when when we covered Ed Kemper, I I took the approach of like the story gives you the broad strokes, right? And it doesn't really get down into the nitty gritty details. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I like that approach with the, yeah. with the serial killers to not just put everything out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You um, know, but also for those that like a real true spooky tale, it leaves yeah. a lot to be desired. Sure. That's fair. But that's what the debrief's for. That's true. Cause it's going to get fair warning listeners. It's going to get fucking disgusting today. So... All of these are, you know, just uh, just getting you to continue listening. It's not (laughs) clickbait, because we're not. (laughs) This is pod bait. Yeah, pod bait. Voice bait. Debrief bait. Audio bait. Audio bait. It's, no, it's like, it's, it's really bad. Like, this, this guy is, and this is not exactly a hot take but ted bundy is like a truly disgusting human being yeah (laughs) like it's he makes ed kemper like look like a children's i mean fucking clown anyone that's capable of such terrible things especially to the degree possibly even over a hundred murders yeah like yeah, that's absolutely disgusting. I think we can. I th- I think most people will agree with you at least on that. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, there are there are other sides. I I feel like I feel like it's and he just seems like a different level. Like I've yeah. researched a lot of serial killers in my day. And what are you doing? This is my because f- <laughs> I'm fucked up. Um, <laughs> if we had a siren like, sound, we'd play it right now. Right. Cue siren sound. <laughs> it's um it's impressive to me how I don't want to say impressive because there's nothing impressive about this person, but like it was shocking to me how much worse it was than I realized it yeah. was. Yeah, I mean this was my first time really getting into his like crimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because the the public is given so much, right? Yep. And of course, that's going to be for uh, that's for a reason, you know. Yeah. I mean, they can't be super super descriptive and overly yep. detailed in the media and things like that. But yeah, I mean, the further we dive into these and the further we really like look into them and find just how terrible and gruesome they really are, like, yeah, it really kind of sheds sheds a lot of light on that for sure. Yeah, I mean, so you can kind of think of the story as the headline, right? Because, like, you're never going to see a newspaper headline like, local politician revisits corpses in the forest to fuck their decapitated faces. Right. Yeah. That's never in the paper. But was that something (laughs) he did? Yes. There you go. Absolutely. You heard it here. Man. (laughs) Yeah, which is... Man, like... uh, the, The idea of that. Even just, like... I mean, I'm, so I'm not like I'm not trying to like put together a scenario, but just the idea of that is absolutely disgusting. That yeah, <sighs> I, I I I don't get it, but it's it's a lot, man. Clearly not my cup of it's, tea. 
<laughs> Apparently, it was yeah. for him though. Oh, Jesus Christ! Yeah, yeah, that, it's it's just messed up. I'm like, I'm fascinated by him because you think of, you think you know what a monster looks like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and he doesn't. He's not it. Right. Right. Like, this is the guy who like warns you about the monster. Right, mm-hmm. like he's all outward appearances tell you that he's trustworthy. It's wild. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's that's the thing that like makes this case so crazy. Yeah, is that like he is able to manipulate people into really buying into everything everything he says, and like, and just the way that the way that he approached many of those situations, yep. like faking injuries and car troubles yeah. and like this or that like yeah he was he was able to lure in a lot of his victims very very easily yeah like uh the the classic right silence of the lambs buffalo bill is is partly based on on ted bundy the classic scene where he lures the girl into the van by asking her to help him put the couch in the van and he has a cast on and right you know what i mean that's straight from what ted bundy yeah i mean did. you you make yourself almost appear vulnerable yep and like and then somebody's gonna it's gonna you know be able to buy into that or um you sympathize with you there we go yeah and which just crazy i don't i don't know it's just it's it, wild. it is it really is it's a it's a, it's a very fascinating thing I think about this case. Yeah, I mean, and an, another layer of my fascination comes from a debate we always have on the true crime episodes, which is nature versus nurture. Yeah, right. That's what people are constantly trying to figure out. And while I, in my heart of hearts, I think I believe that it's it's a combination of both, right? Um, but I tend to lean toward nurture that, yeah, that the vast majority of violent people are made violent by being exposed to violence. Yeah. Right. That and just, just their, their upbringing. Yeah. Right. I mean, like this, for example, growing up thinking your grandparents are your parents and that your mother's your sister, which is super weird. Right. I mean, I mean. Just just that on top of everything, like I, you know, I because I always, of course, like my mind goes to that like early childhood, that development. Yep. Yeah, and we're gonna talk a lot about his childhood. Oh, I for I, sure, I expect to. Because like that's the thing though is that's like the worst thing that happened to him right. as a kid. So when you compare that to dozens of other serial killers mm-hmm. who went through fucking, I mean, living hell as yeah. children. In those situations, it's easy to point to that and go, like, this is what broke this human being. You know what I mean? But, like, Teddy Boy here had a fairly cushy upbringing. Yeah. Like, there was some weirdness with the, you know, unwed mother and they, you know, did the cover-up thing for a while. And that that can fuck you up a little bit, I guess. I mean, I think that's gonna, it's gonna leave some lasting, you know, just trauma due, due to that, right? Right, just the just the just the dishonesty right, of it, for sure. I think, would leave mm-hmm. would leave a mark. But compare that to Ed Kemper and getting locked under the kitchen mother, floor, yes. and yeah, yeah, Ugh. being told every day that he's not worthy, and you know, being beaten, and 
yeah, most likely sexually abused and all kinds of shit that happened to a lot mm-hmm. of these serial killers. Like Ted Bundy's childhood was not like that. So it's weird. That's another layer of it being odd, like how he ended up so fucked yeah. up, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. He's an argument for nature over nurture. You know what I mean? Like, was this guy actually born evil? You know what I mean? I mean, you know, there, there's that that thing where, of course, everyone is born very pure, right? So, you know, I, right. that's conventional yeah, wisdom. Exactly. Right? I don't yeah. think anyone is born necessarily evil. I mean, unless it's in their DNA and. I, that's what I mean. I like, suppose that's possible, but like that, that seems, I don't know that seems weird, but I know there's a lot of studies on that though, too. I mean, he was at the very least a born sociopath, right? Right. This guy is incapable of understanding what other human beings are feeling. Who's to say maybe his father didn't have some degree of that or, you know, sure. Yeah. I mean, or if we're going biological, like, you know, yeah, like, Yeah. There's some rumors that his, well, not really rumors, he, and we'll get to this, but like he goes back and forth, just like all these stories when you rely on the stories from the actual killers themselves, they're wildly unreliable, they change night to day at different interviews with different people. Yeah. Like, he he's said that his grandfather was this like awful, malicious, violent person in some interviews, and then he's talked about him like glowingly. In other interviews, so hmm. who knows what was real? Yeah, you, know? you can basically just take that with a grain of salt at that point. Yeah, yeah, both. Odds are the guy was a normal. Yeah, like a normal grandpa in the fifties. I'd like he to probably think was he was a probably dick a normal sometimes. grandpa, but yeah, like yeah. very much yeah. that that fifties mentality. Uh, you know what it comes yeah, to stoic, right. stern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that for sure. Like, one of the first things I wanted to address, because as we've already mentioned multiple times, when we talked about Ed Kemper, we talked about him being a displacement killer, right? Like, he killed in order to satiate that desire to kill his mother. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That that was his driving force. Right. But Bu- Bundy's a completely different animal. He's, they categorize him as a power control killer. So, like... Okay. He was only ever motivated by a desire to dominate his victims. Like, where wherever that came from, who knows? But, like, that was his driving force. I'd say it which checks is, out. Yeah, it's super common with rapists, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, anyone anyone can tell you that, like, rape isn't about sex, right? It's, it's about the power, need for and power control. Exactly. And, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it makes sense for him. He, um... Just like a quick overview. He confessed to 30 murders, right, that were committed in seven states between 1974 and 1978. Okay. Which is moving at an insane clip. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's it. <laughs> when, when we start getting into the victims, it's like for a long time, he's going like a month between, two weeks between, sometimes multiple in a day. Like, it's... How did he have time for all of that? (laughs) He didn't work. He stole everything that he ever had. I mean, I guess guess that'll give you plenty of of spare time. I mean, I shouldn't say he didn't work, because he actually held some pretty important positions along the way. Like, he had some... But at the beginning of his 
serial killer career, if you want to call it that. When he first started killing, he was like he was a flaky college student. He wasn't really making great grades. He wasn't showing up at class. He was busy slaughtering women. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he had better shit to do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> he had he had priorities. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, they weren't the right priorities. <laughs> um but he was suspected of many, many more. Yeah. killings than that. Like some people estimate up to 100 that he was responsible for up to 100. The conservative estimate um people who study the case link him to a total of like 36 36 30. was, there's like, yeah what i had found yeah. yep there's like 36 there are like six that they that most people believe he didn't ever confess to but he was in the area they line up with his mo like it's it makes perfect sense that okay. it would have been him um the the whole thing about ted bundy i think that sets him apart from from other American serial killers is that like charm and charisma mm-hmm. that he has. Right. And that's a reason why Ted Bundy is where we see the highest concentration of those fucking creepy women who sexualize serial killers. Well, yeah. I mean, right? he was able to get engaged and <laughs> yeah, married in the courtroom also being his own officiant, which I think is super, super funny. That, I, I mean, that that's a little, cool. Yeah, it's that that statement's a little misleading because there's a weird rule in Florida where where the trial was going on, where if you if you um, go through the proposal process in front of a judge in a courtroom, you're you're legally married. Right. So without having to sign like marriage certificate or. Right. But that it like that's the taken as the verbal part Uh, of. Okay. Basically, uh, like the same as right. yeah, yeah, of the uh, same as like a, a judge doing it. Yeah. Um, so while he's cross-examining his girlfriend on the stage because he's his own co-counsel, he proposes to her, which is also ballsy. Him being his own, yeah, yeah. But that's it was that charm. A t- it was a terrible plan, though. <laughs> honestly, like he fucked it bad. <laughs> I mean, like it's a terrible plan defense, in the first place. Yeah, his defense team afterward was like we were fucked from the beginning like he wanted to control every aspect of it like and they were like we he had a good chance of getting off most of those charges but he was too busy wanting to control the whole thing to you know to allow us to do our job yeah which thank god you know what i mean i mean yeah obviously this would be way more frustrating if at the end we're like and then he was freed or he served (laughs) like five years and did three or something stupid yeah exactly (sighs) but like he was a genuinely good looking dude and he was like a smooth talker super smooth talker um and that charisma definitely carried over into dealing with like law enforcement and judges and juries and prison guards when he's in prison like he gets a lot of special treatment along the way yeah because people like him they just like him like he's light and affable and people describe him even after he's convicted like prison guards describe him as fun to be around like which is fucking crazy i was not to not to draw away from the topic but i was looking up the uh the zach efron movie that was based on ted bundy um and yeah the reason that they had casted zach efron because i know we had talked about it in passing before we started this yeah was he's that a beautiful man the argument for having him in the role was that he captured the charisma and the image that enabled 
Bundy to basically be believed. Yeah. You know, so I they were that. looking for someone very pretty, someone very like, you know, approachable, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 The, <laughs> the thing for me because a lot of people and even me at times I I argue like he wasn't that hot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. Zach Af- Zach Efron is like miles and miles yeah. more attractive He's a beautiful than Ted Bundy human ever being, was. That's for sure. Yeah. But like the thing is if you look at Ted Bundy in a room full of normal men, yeah, you're like, shit, he, that's a good looking he's dude. A, right. He, right? He's going to stand you out, look at, for sure. Yeah. If you look at Zac Efron in a crowd of actors, you're going to go, shit, that's a good looking dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's fair. the same thing. So, like, it's just different levels, yeah. right? If they yeah. picked an actor who would have stood out in a room full of normal people... It probably wouldn't. They it wouldn't be making that point. Yeah, you know what I agreed. mean. Like they're trying to drive that point home that yeah, you, that he was. You don't want some average Joe looking bud coming sure. in there, and yeah, I mean they yeah. they wanted to make sure like it was very focused on on him being very charismatic and right. Yep, yep. Which makes perfect um, sense because I mean that's what this is all based. Yeah, and, you know, it's kind of centered around right now. Yeah, that's true. Like his his go to method. Right, was to approach a woman in public and he would lure her to his vehicle that was parked in a more secluded area and then he right. would beat her unconscious. That was the thing. He liked crowbars, he liked, you know, metal pipes, shit like that. Mm. Clubs. He would basically club them and then handcuff them in, in the car and then take them away from where they were abducted and then that's when you get into the sexual assault and the murder. Usually strangulation is how he killed most of his victims. And he would do the fake casts thing and like crutches mm. and all that shit like we talked about to appear vulnerable, right? Yeah. The Buffalo Bill thing. I remember watching Silence of the Lambs when I was like way too young to be watching <laughs> Silence of the yeah, Lambs. Yeah, I, I think we all did. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and thinking like, man, Buffalo Bill is way scarier than Hannibal Lecter. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. he just he had that like unpredictable edge to him. And now, as a person who I was gonna say, it really makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, now, as a person who has like researched serial killers, I understand why he was so unsettling, and it's mm-hmm. because he was based on Ted Bundy and Ed Gein. Like, yeah, yeah, that's. That's another yeah. 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 That's that's a rough combo, you know? Um so the thing okay, so after he would kill them, he would dump their bodies, usually in you know, he would dump them in rural areas. But he would go back to where he dumped the bodies repeatedly and not only have sex with the corpses, but he would like brush their hair and clean under their fingernails. And like, at least he like took care of him after and the fact. It's that aftercare yeah. is important, <laughs> as we've discussed previously. <laughs> I was waiting for that. I, I'm not. I'm not I saying any of this is okay. After, so please after don't care. That. But yes, aftercare is very yeah. important. <laughs> also, he decapitated at least a dozen of his victims. A dozen. That, just, ugh. man. Like I don't know. Decapitation is one thing that like makes my stomach turn the thought of yeah any i mean it dehumanizes the human body it does which it's supposed to make you like it's supposed to like revolt you on an instinctual level the idea of removing the head from a human yeah you know what i mean yeah yeah that's why you know in those 
in like movies you'll you'll see like they'll show like a crazy a crazy ex and they have like a picture where the of them with their with their ex and the faces scrubbed out right or it's yeah. like and that's the reason that's such an unsettled like a sign of the like this person is fucking nuts like this is about to escalate this is because that instinctual revulsion with yeah. moving that with removing the head you know what that's i mean that's fair that's fair yeah unless they it's, don't want to look at their dumb faces anymore when they scribble it out <laughs> yeah you know i mean it could be that it turns them into not a person anymore but yeah so they exactly. don't they don't have to deal with them being a person right which is a scary thing to want it is yeah you know what without I mean? a doubt agreed yeah um so he would keep this up with the bodies until decomposition or animal predation basically broke down the bodies too much for him to continue doing it yeah and then he would stop revisiting them there's a little too Um, much less of you so i think i'll pass (laughs) yeah yeah exactly also with those dozen that he decapitated he often kept their severed heads in his apartment yeah yeah you just start putting them like on bookshelves or something as trophies at that point yeah it, it reminds me of it, when we did Ed Kemper, when he cut his mom's head off and he put her head on the chair across from him in the bedroom, and he's like throwing darts at it and like, I mean, yeah. screaming at it. And yeah, I mean, at that point, they can't, you know, like give. I know Ed, Ed Kemper's was mostly about his mom, so like it was probably a thing yeah. where at that point he could say and do whatever, talk any way he wanted to, and just let it all out, yeah. and she couldn't talk back. Yep. So yeah, that's yeah. that's what it was. I don't know. I just find I, I find it it just especially in this case, just a bit more unsettling. Yeah. Agreed. It's it feels more random. I yeah, think that's sure. what makes this one scarier than Kemper's because it's you at least understand his motivations. Not that you find them reasonable, but yeah. you you understand what was driving him. Yeah, you know what Agreed. I mean. Mm-hmm. But with with Ted Bundy, there's. I just, I can't figure it. Right. There's no, like, really no rhyme or reason to any, any of the victims or, right. Yep. Yeah. His, the, the other approach he would take, because about half the time he did the public approach. Yeah. Right. And about half the time he did break-ins. So he would break into a house at night, bludgeon the woman, strangle her, sexual assault, and all that, like, while she was asleep. Right, he would just attack her while she was sleeping, and yeah, that's pretty much what he did. Yeah, yeah, he was a terrible it's human rough. being. There's some shit he did in Florida while he was escaped from prison. The whole it's dude. the whole escape to me is is nuts. Yeah, like I mean, and, and now of course, and as you mentioned in the story, since then prisons have really like cracked down on security and stuff yeah. like that. So like it almost just seems like so impossible and so out of place. Yeah, but. At that time, I mean, I'm sure it really you know, wasn't that difficult. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of because it's like you like you said it perfectly. It's out of place. Like you think of Ted Bundy existing in modern times, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's one of those things that was like a holdover from an older era, right? So like, there's a weird thing when you when you study World War One, right? When there's always a moment when someone studying that war realizes that the French army was still 
like wearing white gloves and riding horses. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like wearing true. big feathered hats and shit. Yeah. On the battlefield. And it feels so weird and out of place. Like it's a holdover from a previous era. Yeah. You know? That's true. I mean time it doesn't time belong is anymore. Very very weird in that you know, in that like regard rather. Does that yeah. mean even things twenty years ago are so would be so out of place now? Like T V right. shows and stuff like that. Like, you know, we couldn't do now. Like, I yeah. mean, just even simple little things like that as, a, as an example. But, yeah. like, yeah, this just seems so, so crazy. But, yeah, he was able to get out and went on for... Twice. He actually broke out twice. Oh, was it twice? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Good God. I'm going to tell you about both of them. All right, let's... It's... Uh, I'm, they're wild. I'm curious, as I don't... Obviously don't know about the yeah. other. Yeah, we'll we'll get there. We're... I want to I wanna get into his childhood. All right, all right. Okay. So, <laughs> Yeah. Because the nature versus nurture thing, it like, I I feel like it's a big key here. It is. I think it's important like, for sure. In these types of cases, I I honestly, when I think about this thing that this thing that happened with his mom and his grandparents, the switcheroo that they pulled on him, it doesn't seem that weird to me. It doesn't seem that bad, right? It really, it yeah. really doesn't. I mean, like it could have been a thing where this is your mom, but. You know, your grandparents are more capable of taking care of you, and the mom also lives there. So it's like, does that mean yeah, a many, thing. many, many children grow up with their grandparents basically as their parents yeah. or, you know, another another relative, whatever? Yeah, and absolutely. My wife's not did. out of place. Yeah. Like, my wife grew up with her grandparents living in the backyard. Like, they had two houses on the yeah. same property, and she basically had three parents growing up. I mean, that's, single mom that's how it and, is, right? And that, and that, yeah. like, you know those types of cases yeah basically everybody is you know the the parent in those cases so yeah, yeah i don't see it yeah. as that that bad i mean you know the fact that they told him that Lied they, about it. right that yeah it just makes it a little weird and i i find you know i can see like especially later in life feeling like you were you know deceived deceived yeah there we go that's a perfect yeah. word for it yeah but it's, i mean not maybe to do i don't think it's that <laughs> yeah yeah of course not a not a reasonable reaction. Um, maybe the reason I don't think it's that weird is my first high school girlfriend grew up like that. Did you know that? Like she grew until she was like fourteen, she thought that her mom was her sister. Oh no, I didn't know that. Actually. And that her grandparents were her parents. Huh. Yeah, yeah, because her mom her mom gave birth to her when she was like fourteen, like a super young teenage pregnancy. I mean, yeah, that's so. That's old enough to be yeah. the older sister, like, right? Which I mean, that nowadays that happens left and right, but yeah, again, back then wasn't as yeah, could, such such yeah. a com- common thing. The thing that I don't like about it is they talk about it, and in interviews, there were a couple interviews with his mom before she died with Ted Bundy's mom, and she always made it seem like that choice was to save Ted from the stigma of it, but I don't buy that shit at all. I think yeah. it's much more likely that it was to save the grandparents save, from the exactly. stigma of having a daughter who yeah. got pregnant. And not only the grandparents, but also the daughter of being ridiculed yep. by, you know, peers because she was so yep. young. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think I, it had anything to do with Ted's well-being. Definitely more so the, yeah. the parents, the grandparents. Yeah. I mean, you know, Susie, Susie Homemaker next door finds out that your daughter's had a kid and 
soon everybody in the town knows and you're the laughing stock and it's like hmm. sure <laughs> yeah there's some there's also some weirdness with this because there are conflicting reports as there always are with this stuff the general consensus seems to be that he didn't find out the truth until he was in his 20s but it he moves when he's like how he would have been like 10 not even 10 years old he moves with his mom his actual mom from philadelphia to tacoma washington and she gets married and her husband adopts him yeah that seems weird right so like did they put another layer of lies on top of it like you're moving with your sister (laughs) right like i don't either that or your new daddy right (laughs) either that or he knew at that age you know what i, I mean, mean i feel like by then he probably knew you'd almost have to right you know what i mean yeah like it seems like know, a long but, time to even go on and especially if he didn't find out till his 20s yeah i mean how oblivious could you be at that point right i mean it's um Anne rule the the wildly famous now uh true crime author she actually knew ted bundy like they worked together at the crisis hotline that's where they met oh really Cool. And at the time, she was like an aspiring writer and an ex-cop. And um, she's the one who really talks about, like, details about the when the moment he finds out. And he's in his 20s. So I don't I don't know what Maybe to, how to make sense of he like two. comes back and as a way to, like, gain pity on him or something, like comes back with this story and. Yeah, maybe knew all these years, but he's like, oh, yeah, I found this out. I'm having a terrible day. Could be. I I don't know. I mean, I'm just, you know, making up scenarios, but yeah, it just seems weird. But maybe he... I can't make sense of the two things. Right. Both happening, you know? (laughs) Are you sure you're right when when they moved? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a young child when they moved. Um, Because he grew up in Tacoma. Like, he lived his early, early life in Philadelphia, but he grew up in Tacoma with this stepdad who was, by all accounts, pretty cool. Like, Ted always disliked him, always, like, made fun of him. He, like, described him as, like, a weak, like, a weak example of a man, and he never made enough money and shit like that. Like, Mm. Ted Bundy was a trash can. (laughs) Yeah, he fucking was. (laughs) But, like... On top of the fact that he murdered 30-some women, right? he also was a, like, diehard, dyed-in-the-wool, red-to-the-core Republican. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. So when he criticized people, he always, like, he doesn't make very much money, does he? Like, just stupid shit. Like, who gives a fuck? Right. Shut up. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So he was also kind of like a stuck up fuck face all right that's fair you know yeah Yeah. which is annoying because his stepdad seemed like a like a great guy you know what i mean like he wanted to adopt him and stuff too like exactly that's that's pretty damn noble of you like yeah and this is in the 50s when like an an unwed mother was a major social taboo and the guy took that on you know what i mean yeah he was like we can do this It, it doesn't matter to me right he seemed like a nice guy, honestly. But Tacoma is where the weirdness starts with him as a kid, right? So there were stories that he would like roam the streets going through trash cans looking for porn, which isn't all that weird. I mean, right? 
to roam the streets looking for looking through trash cans for porn. It's a little weird, but I guess it wasn't as accessible as I I think like I I think I relate this to the like the experience that most have when they're young where they like find dad's stack of playboys. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the or like you find some like old box of magazines in like your friend's garage. You know what I mean? Something yeah. like that. But I guess he was out actively looking for it in right. trash cans. You know what I mean? Weird. Like why I mean, I'm just saying, like, especially in the days of like magazines and whatever else like that being like the most common place for for this you know yeah i would say you know because you always hear about people like oh that's my that's my collection i've collected for our you know past 40 years whatever um i don't think i've ever actually known anybody that said that but i've seen it in movies at least (laughs) (laughs) so Mm -hmm. you know like but i would say people probably weren't i'm gonna toss out my old mag i got a new one i think this was like Cause this was like the late fifties, early sixties. So right. this was like when playboy was really taking off. And I think people looked at them the same way people looked at comic books in that era where you bought it, read it and threw it out. I think so. Like no one. Yeah. I think most people hmm. did that. That just seems, it seems weird. Uh, I don't know. And I think like a husband in this era is way more likely to like, maybe buy one after work and like go through it in the truck and then throw it out before he goes in the house. You know what I mean? Like instead of bringing it, bringing it in. Yeah. And I think I, a wife I in suppose. this era is way more likely to throw it in the trash. If she finds it. That, I mean, yeah, without a doubt, I, I can, yeah. I can agree with that. I don't know. It just so, seems weird, yeah. but regardless, yeah, he's digging uh, through trash for porn. Yeah. He also was obsessed with detective magazines and crime novels. I mean, that's cool. Um, yeah, that's fine. He was particularly interested in stories that involved sexual violence. Okay, that's not so fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He just gets from one to the, to the extreme. Yeah. So, all right. Exactly. Um, Come on, and bud. Then I'm trying to, trying to lease. <laughs> right. Trying to give the serial murderer the benefit of the doubt here. Right. At least as a kid. Come on. <laughs> um, and then he starts peeping. That's uh. like... That's when it first gets actually dicey. You know what I mean? He like now it's not just weird interests. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he's and this is where his fantasizing really got started. Like and those those fantasies are what will drive him through the next, you know, thirty years yeah. of everything he does. But he's about ten years old when he starts peeping. Hiding in the bushes, looking for open windows around the neighborhood. Yeah, that's, a, that's a pretty young age. Yeah, it really is. Like, uh, and there are weird. There are other weird stories from this time period. Like his aunt woke up one time when he was like, I mean, back before he left Philadelphia, he was like four or five years old, and his aunt woke up from a nap to find that Ted, at four or five years old, had taken all of the knives out of the kitchen. And laid them in a circle around her while she was napping. What? Yeah. No way. <laughs> yeah. Like, surrounded her with knives. Like, he was just waiting for her to, like, roll over on one or something. You know? I, yeah. I mean, Super like, weird stories. I'm a niece that age. And I could never imagine her doing anything like that. Like, yeah. I mean, that that's super twisted. Dude, I have teenage boys and i can't imagine them peeping right yeah 
You know what I mean? Like, it's... I can't imagine a 10-year-old. That That's that's so insane it's, to me. Yeah. And I, mean, th- I think that's that's where we really see it, is that he gets to these stages really quickly. Yeah. Like, I, you know what I, I mean? couldn't imagine a 10-year-old even, like... Thinking about thinking it. about sex or thinking yeah. about like peeping, I, that just that seems so weird. Yeah, it is weird. Huh. It is definitely weird. I mean, most ten year olds aren't. You know, that's why it's like a sign. If you, like if you're a teacher, it's you listen to the language that these young kids use, and when you like you hear certain words and phrases, and it's a sign that something's going on. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's not a phrase or a thought that a kid this that age in that developmental stage should have. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's so wild. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. So um, for uh, Anne Rule's book, she interviewed Sandy Holt, and she was a, a neighbor who grew up with, with Ted in Tacoma. She was one of the neighbor girls. Okay. Um, like same she age? Gave some, or... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, around the same age. She gave some seriously insane stories about what he was like as a kid. Like, I'm just going to read you a few quotes. All right, let's hear them. Okay. My mind is already blown, so... He liked to terrify people. He liked to be in charge. He liked to inflict pain and suffering and fear. He hung one of the stray cats in the neighborhood from one of the clotheslines in the backyard. Content warning. Animal violence. He doused it in lighter fluid and set no. it on fire. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. He, she also talked about how he would take younger children in the, from the neighborhood into the woods and terrorize them. Like, the quote is, he'd take them out there and strip them down, take their clothes. You'd hear them screaming for blocks. I mean, no matter where you were in the neighborhood, you could hear them screaming. How is he getting these kids to just, oh, yeah, I'll go out in the woods with you. Sure, I'll take my clothes off. Like, it's just bigger. He was a bigger kid. He did it to, like, the younger kids in the neighborhood. Wow. Yeah. So, like, this shit started very early. But what, like, what brought this on? Like, I don't, I don't know. To me, it just seems like so random and abrupt yes they're like i had i don't know i've i've again i i go back to that like i feel you know i always feel like there has to be something at least some point right that causes them to like just get pissed off at the world or something right this yeah i mean this is going to be the through line for the story and that's what makes it so deeply unsettling is we want we want a cause we want something that we know we can avoid yeah. You know what I mean? And there doesn't Never seem to be right. a yeah. Like it's it's unsettling, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Tales it's, of the Strange and Unsettling. Yeah, and this one is both. Oh, for sure. Very, very much. I mean, a lot of these things now, I had no idea, you know, like so Yeah. Yeah. What's what's really weird though, I know all this is weird, but what's really odd is even at this young age there are two versions of Ted. So he does all this shit that I just told you, the peeping, the terrorizing, burning cats tied to clotheslines. But in the eyes of his, in the eyes of his teachers and his parents, he's a totally normal, like middle to average kid. Yeah. Like he does well in high school. He, even as he gets older, he's seen as like well-known and well-liked by his peers. Like, 
some just saw him as a normal kid like yeah you know it's but he talked about in interviews he talked about how he struggled with making real friends like from the jump and I he mean, he's coming off his exact two personalities basically yeah yeah i mean his exact phrase and this this shows how deeply sociopathic he was his exact phrasing was i never understood why people decided to be friends with each other (laughs) but he goes on to you know one day find some comfort and some companionship yeah you know at least a little bit he dabbled in it it's true there's and we're we're gonna we're about to talk about that because when he yeah when he goes to college is where he meets the woman like the defining woman in his life the 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 woman yeah all right um let's keep her so he goes to college and he bounces between a couple universities in washington state he does like a couple semesters at puget sound university and then uh washington state and he meets like essentially the love of his life and that's weird to say about a sociopath but like he her name's diane edwards and like Anne rule wrote quote he saw a woman who was the epitome of his dreams she was like no girl he had ever seen before and he considered her the most sophisticated the most beautiful creature possible wow like you don't yeah you don't often think about especially like a sociopath right being able yep. to i i can't say that they're un like incapable of love because that's like a whole a whole different thing right i think i think they can definitely they definitely can be i think the way their way of showing it i think is is wildly like different yeah exactly that but yeah. like as far as finding someone you know in this case especially him growing up or him having these like two different like almost personalities growing up and you know it just seems so far from that for him to like but it also you know it's development that's that's growing up too yeah. so maybe you know sure. at that point like he's trying maybe it's like coming further from his mind at first yeah i think you you hit the nail on the head is they show love differently they also experience love differently than most oh, yeah, people for do. sure for sure yep so like sociopaths tend to see the people that they have relationships with and romantic and otherwise they see their relationships as an extension of themselves yeah right so when he found this like perfect girl this like the most sophisticated most beautiful he was like this girl is she's an acceptable extension of me right because sociopathy has a, a it has a lot of um narcissism in it right so like yeah for sure the the idea is like he finally found a woman he thought was worthy of him right and that's yeah yeah he doesn't really he doesn't really find that again he has lots of girlfriends along the way but like none of them are are diane i mean sometimes you only find that one yeah they slip away and you spend the rest of your life looking for them yeah Maybe that's, that's true. Maybe that's what he was trying to do. I mean, his quote in the it was in the last interview he ever gave. It was when he, the same one he gave his last confession. Um, he said that Diane Edwards was the only woman I ever really loved. Yeah. So you know, checks out. 
do do with that what you will. I don't whatever love means to someone like Ted Bundy. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, I mean, it's just he saw it as something separate. It's from just what he fascinating. Felt for everyone else, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's another one yeah. of those like, oh, that's actually, you know, that's not necessarily neat, but it's fascinating to learn. Yeah, for sure. And <clears throat> I should say like. Because it's easy to instantly relate the word sociopath with violence, with murderers, with, you know, serial killers. But just like every other mental illness, it's a spectrum, right? So there are people with sociopathy that, that, you know, are wildly successful and they're positive members of society and they just interface with the world differently than other people do. You know what I mean? It's one does not doesn't necessarily mean the other that's true that's true so i guess you can't kind of put them all into the same classification right they're the same thing so and maybe maybe that's what i'm doing like you know kind of as thinking looking at it like that like oh he was able to find love it's black and white that's crazy (laughs) yeah right but i mean most people agree that he's one of the most extreme examples of sociopathy ever ever recorded ever i mean especially about the thing of people can make friends <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah oh all right um so in um in 1968 he drops out of college and he starts working for he starts working in local politics like small jobs like he um works for the rockefeller campaign in 68 he becomes a driver for arthur fletcher who while he's running for lieutenant governor um but then in later in that year in 68 He's a fucking Rockefeller delegate at the 68 Republican National Convention. Like, he's chosen to be a delegate I at mean, the convention, which is It's nuts. that charisma, man. I know. I know. That I mean, ability this is like, to just... Yeah, to just talk your way mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Which this is crazy. Like, at this point, this is like serious political ties. Yeah. Like, if, if you're a delegate, like, you're you're in the know, for sure. What's funny is around the same time he does this, his girlfriend the the only woman he ever loved that he ever loved breaks up with him she breaks up with him because he has no ambition really yeah that's the reason And he's like doing all this stuff like these big things i would say at that point yeah i think it's because he dropped out of college (laughs) yeah what a yeah uh, sometimes girls are evil sorry i think it's because he dropped out of college like she saw him maybe, like maybe, he's only gonna yeah. go so far without finishing college you know what i mean but i guess at that point that was that was a way of thinking you know yeah um but he was you know like we said he was obsessed with her and she rejected him like that was her taking his power away yeah and there's a good chance that this like triggered a resurgence of the darker impulses that he'd been oh i'm sure squashing for a while you know like a lot of a lot of people who study the case agree that this is like an inflection point yeah. for him. It's like this is a moment like where he sort of snaps on the inside. And uh he heads back east for about a year and a half and then he comes back to Washington and he meets Elizabeth Klopfer. Klopfer. Um Klopfer. Okay. Yep. Um and this is the woman that he'll be with on and off through like all the way through to his incarceration oddly enough not the woman he marries in the court case okay (laughs) that's another girlfriend but she's like a big a big part of of the story 
he becomes like a father figure for her daughter, Molly, who was three when they first got together. And another, you know, active trigger warning. This is where shit like really gets gross. Like, I know he already hanged and burned a cat, but seriously, right. this like this gets really gross. Like, so as an adult, Molly, the, the girl wrote about incidents beginning at age seven in which Bundy was abusive or sexually inappropriate with her. So her accounts include Bundy hitting her in the face and knocking her down, um, putting her at risk of drowning. Like he would shove her head under the water when he, when she was in the bathtub. Yeah. Um, indecent exposure and sexual touching disguised as accidents or games. So like, classic grooming that's not an accident that's not a game of course not don't uh, yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's classic grooming yes it's yeah yeah this is the stuff i don't like same talking about same i'm just trying to get through it yeah i mean it's it's all part Uh, of it's all part of this case yeah so it like it makes my skin crawl yeah without a doubt yeah i'm just I'm just going to move forward. Okay. <laughs> um, in, um, in mid-1970, he says that he is ready to get serious, and he re-enrolls in college at the University of Washington okay. as a psychology major. Originally, he was uh What better else. way to manipulate people yeah, with his exactly. already, you know, abilities to do so, and then become a psychology major? Yeah, exactly. Then in 71, a year later, he takes a job at Seattle at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. And this is where he meets Anne Rule. Right. The uh, the author. Um, she went on to write like the the definitive biography on him. It's called The Stranger Beside Me. And it's I read this when we were in high school and I don't. That's what's weird is like, I don't remember. I remember carrying this book with me in high school for like. A couple months and like having teachers ask me about it and stuff like yeah you know like it was inappropriate you know um but i don't i didn't remember anything from it which i guess is, that's like 20 years ago but yeah we're yeah, old now right uh, yeah for sure it's hard to remember you know things i read at that point so yeah absolutely things that i didn't reread several times since then you know what i mean those are the books that i remember from that time period <laughs> the thing the things I remember from that time are like Tabor's Cheers and stuff like that. We'll, we'll oh, just yeah. leave it there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you know, you know. Exactly. Um, according to Ann Rule, when she found out what was going on with, with Ted Bundy, she was shocked. Mm-hmm. Like she at the time that she knew him in the crisis center, she said she would have described him as kind, solicitous, and empathetic. So like this is how good he was getting at putting on that yeah. character and for public, which is right. scary. I'm sure there, you know, they would have like small talk like, oh, hey, how you doing? How, how's your week? How's your day? Yeah. Whatever. Like, you know, like this or that. Like, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't think someone next to you is like that. There has like this whole secret, secret life going on, basically. Yeah, I think she was she was shocked, though, because she had heard him, you know, they worked there for like a year together, but she heard him take dozens and if not hundreds of calls from people contemplating suicide. 
and mm-hmm. like listen to him talk them through it. You know what I mean? Like provide assistance. So like she thought of him as this like empathetic, caring yeah. person. And yeah. It was all a character. Yeah. Clearly. But yeah, yeah. I mean, think of it like that and, and listening to him like take calls and talk these people down and Yeah. That's it'd be easy to have a skewed perception of him. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he does graduate college. He finishes, gets a bachelor's in psychology from the University of Washington, and instantly gets a job working on the governor's reelection campaign. Why not? Um, <laughs> yeah. And then he has a series of actual serious political jobs, like going from campaign to campaign. Um, he gets into law school after this. In the latter part of 1973, he starts skipping class in law school, and by April of 74, he stops attending altogether. Mm. And coincidentally, this is about the time that women start disappearing in the Pacific Northwest. Who would have thought? Yeah. So, there's really no consensus on when he started killing. Yeah. Because there's there's a lot of speculation. He told different people different stories at different times, like, like he did about everything. Um, he was always vague and refused to give details, right? So in three separate interviews, he gave three separate accounts of when he started killing. So he told one person that his first kidnapping was in 69 and his first murder was in 71. Hmm. He told another person that the first time he killed, he killed two women in Philadelphia in 69. Then he told another person that his first killing was in Seattle in 72. Okay. So there's just, there's no way of telling what's what. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But a lot of people who have studied him agree that he most likely started killing as a teenager. That like, while all this was going on, he was killing. Yeah. It's hard not to, not to agree with that. But his first killing, like, confirmed by him full confession all that was in 1974 when he was 27 years old okay um but he said also in that confession he said that by then he had mastered the necessary skills to leave minimal incriminating forensic evidence at crime scenes and it's like how do you so how'd you master it if this was your first killing you know what i mean yeah like yeah so a lot of people agree that he just didn't want to talk about what he did when he was younger. I mean, that's yeah. I think I think I think it's reasonable to assume that there yeah. there was a lot more that he did start at an earlier age. Yeah, I think so too. And then uh, let's get into the victims. Okay, you ready? Yeah, you ready for this? So um, January fourth, nineteen seventy four, Karen Sparks. Okay, she was. An 18-year-old dance student at UW, UW, I believe they call it. Probably. Um, he broke into her base- basement apartment. He bludgeoned her with a metal rod from her own bed. He sexually assaulted her with the same rod. He, She suffered massive internal injuries from the sexual assault. She actually survived after 10 days in a coma in the hospital. Wow. But she had, per- she had permanent brain damage from the attack which is it's shocking to say but like compared to the next you know 25 28 people Mm -hmm. she's 
one of the lucky ones to survive. Yeah, you but know what I mean, I mean that, that forever brain yeah. damage that some some would disagree. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And never tell a sexual assault survivor that they're lucky. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, less than a month later in February 1st, Linda Ann Healy is a 21-year-old undergrad at UW. He noticed her because she did the broadcast in the mor- for morning weather for skiers. Um, he comes across her in public. He drags her off a ski trail, beats her unconscious. Then he dressed her in jeans, a blouse, and boots, and drove her to a secluded access road where he murdered her and dumped her in the woods. That's as much detail as he would go into in that confession. So he redressed her yes. to take her to a different area. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It's There's a lot of weird shit here. I mean, yeah, that's, that's you know super I mean? weird. That just doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah. Let me change your clothes, girl, and then I'm going to kill yeah. you. Like, These, like, this... Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. I mean, he goes back to dumped bodies and cleans out their fingernails. Right. You know what that's, I mean? Like, he does all true, kinds yeah. of shit that... It doesn't make any sense. It's so weird. Yeah. All right. Um, again, a month later, Donna Gail Manson, 19-year-old student from Evergreen State College, he, in the confession, described her death as nightmarish. Nightmarish. All right. Um, he said that he incinerated her skull in his girlfriend's fireplace and vacuumed up the ashes. So was his girlfriend along for that? Nope. There's never any evidence that anyone knew he was doing any of this. You don't think anyone did? That's the general consensus. Huh. That he literally just charismaed his way through all of it. Like, fucking Ricky to everybody. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. That character might be a sociopath, by the way. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> um, little over a month later... This first run is literally one a month. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm getting that. It's, yeah, April 17th, same year, Susan Rancourt, 18 years old, Central Washington State College, vanishes on her way to a meeting after a party. Two female Central Washington students later came forward to report encounters, one on the night of the disappearance and the other three nights earlier with a man wearing a sling who was asking for help carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. Okay. So they they attribute that that one to him yeah. completely. He was, Man. you know, he's right there. Kind of checks out. And he admits to it, but that's one of the ones that the body was never found. Ah. Um, then May 6th, three weeks later, Roberta Parks, 22 years old, Oregon State University, he approaches her in a cafeteria... She's sitting alone. He said that she looked sad and lonely. So he went and sat next to her and he sweet talked her into going with him for a drive. Right. He drives her to a remote location and rapes her. He keeps her in the car for a few hours, rapes her again, and then kills her and dumps the body. Good God. Yep. It's only going to get worse. I mean, I know. So strap in. I'm Um, strapped. (laughs) After this case, we have a classic 70s press conference moment where, like, the investigators are trying to make connections between victims. Yeah. You know? Um, and it just ends up creating panic. So 
They say in the press conference that the killer is after young, thin, white girls with long hair parted in the middle. That's what they say. Yeah. And just like when Son of Sam was in New York and Mm. they said he was after brunettes and there's this like epidemic of young women bleaching their hair. Like when they do this press conference, they all cut their hair and move their part. And yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, it's understandable. You don't want to be in the demographic. I mean, yeah, right? of course. Yeah. I'd go with leave Washington. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. But, I mean, he was yeah. doing this in, what, seven, seven different states? Yeah. So really, like, how far can you go? Yeah, for sure. All right. Less than a month later, June 1st, Brenda Ball, 22 years old, disappears after leaving a tavern. Last seen in the parking lot talking to a brown-haired man with his arm in a sling. According to his confession, this is very much a grain of salt, but according to his confession, they had consensual sex, then he strangled her while she was sleeping. So, yeah, you know, you never know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's tough. Tough to say for sure. Yeah, for sure. Then, only 10 days later, George Ann Hawkins, 18 years old, UW student, vanished while walking through an alley. He lured her to his car knocked her out with a crowbar, handcuffed her, drove to a suburb, and, quote, spent the night with her body. That's how he put it in the confession. Did he, like, just plant her next to him and take her to a movie or, like, a drive-in? You know, I'm going to I'm gonna guess no. Okay. <laughs> he uh, went back. This is fucking nuts. So he goes the next day back to the scene where they're investigating. They're, like, sweeping the area, the, yeah. the alleyway that... And he goes back to the scene and he picks up her earrings and her shoe from the adjoining parking lot where he dragged her into the car. Like okay. right there where they're investigating. Just picks them up and walks off with them. Again, this guy and was no ballsy. one stops him. Seriously. It's that, he also said in his confession that, that he revisited <laughs> it is that power yep. of charisma, dude. It's just complete confidence. It's crazy. He also said that he revisited her corpse on three occasions. Um, then this, this shit gets, it gets crazier. It just gets crazier and crazier. So then July 1st, Janice and Denise Nasland. Okay. Same day. So Janice is a 23 year old probation caseworker. This one is in broad daylight at the beach. Okay. All right. He approaches her in a sling with a sling on his arm and asks her to help him unload his car. No one ever seen her alive again. Then he comes... Okay. Then Denise Nasland. Same beach. Same area. Same day. She leaves the picnic. She leaves a picnic to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Never seen alive again. Right? Yeah. In his confession, he describes... He grabbed the first one, knocked her out, handcuffed her, then went back for the other one. He said that he then forced one of them to watch while he murdered the other after taking them to a remote logging road. He strangled both of them before engaging in necrophilia and decapitating both of them. Okay. So there's that. Yeah. How fucking brazen is that? Yeah. I, Two back is, to back. Yeah. This is all just ridiculous. I mean. Dude, I told you. I it feel, just gets crazier I feel like, and crazier. Uh, over time, he was like, all right, you know, let's make this more exciting. Let's make yeah, this more of a challenge. That's the thing. Yep. And I'll read you a quote later that pretty much 
from him that pretty much describes just that. Yeah, I, I would that assume. It, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, here's the kicker to all of that. During this time, he's working as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission. What a just uh, <laughs> yeah. This guy's a piece of shit. And <laughs> on top of that, one of the main things that he did as the as the um, assistant director, he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. Yeah, yeah. Well, because what better way to you know what better person to write a pamphlet yeah. on rape prevention than a rapist? literal predator, right? Yeah. Later on, <sighs> while still killing. He works at the Department for Energy Services, or Emergency Services, the yeah. Department of Emergency Services, which is the state government agency in charge of the search for the missing women. So it allows him to be on the inside. Yes. Again, you know, just, I think just as the same with, uh, was it Ed Kemper's Kemper? case where, yeah, he, you know. Yeah. Be, hang out with the cops at yeah, the bar. Exactly, yep. to, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Being able to be yep. a part of that and learning these little things here and there yeah he got to hear about himself yeah i'm sure that was probably also a high for him as well yep just made him want to do it more Uh, yeah this is um doing this job at the department of emergency services this is where he meets carol ann boone who is the woman that he eventually marries during his trial okay yeah um but at this point after the beach fiasco with the two girls back because there are tons of witnesses to that. Mm-hmm. Like giving. Dis- so at this point, the police finally have a description of him and his car. Right. And the cops put out a composite sketch and talk about the, the Volkswagen Beetle. Right. When they put this out, his ex-girlfriend, Klopfer, um, and rule who worked with him. Right. Um, one of the DES employees and a UW, um, psychology professor all recognize the profile the sketch the car all of it and they report bundy as a possible suspect right four people yeah i i would say that's all calling that's a lot to collaborate you know collaborate on that yeah if it clicks with four separate people who don't know each other yeah i feel like that means something right well cops in the 70s beg to differ because the investigators dismiss it completely because they, quote, couldn't believe that a clean-cut law student with no criminal record could do this. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- so, these days you can't put it past anyone to do anything. Yeah. But back and then. And the police don't anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he looks like he it's wouldn't just, do any of this. They just have this, like, conception that we talked about at the beginning that, like, we know what monsters look like. Yeah. And it's not that. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. I mean, they're very wrong. Yeah. They're so Without very wrong. Um, then, lucky for Bundy, uh, just as his description and all that goes out, he gets accepted into another law school at the University of Utah. Okay. And he moves to Salt Lake City. Right. Um, turns out he was terrible at law school. Um, real bad. Like a month later... And then a month after he goes there, a new string of homicides starts. This time in in and around Salt Lake City. Okay. Well. So now we have a second string. You ready? Yep. The first one was an unidentified hitchhiker on September 2nd, 74. Okay. 
She was raped and strangled in Idaho, right? Right across the, the border. And he, like, this is one he confessed to, but he didn't ever know her name. So, and the body was never found. All right. So, Jane Doe. Um, he said that he raped and strangled her and tossed her on the side of a logging road, basically. And he returned the next day, took pictures, dismembered the body, and then disposed of her remains in the river. So did they ever, like, did they ever find pictures or anything that he has supposedly taken? All right. Nope. We'll get to that, too, for sure. Um, yeah, I got it all for you. All right. October 2nd, a month later, exactly a month later, Nancy Wilcox is 16 years old. He abducts her from the street, forced her into his car, took her back to his apartment, kept her there for 24 hours before strangling her. Um, He claimed to dump the remains in Capitol Reef National Park, but the remains were never found. Okay. Then, 16 days later, on October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, 17 years old, actually the daughter of the police chief. Oh, really? Wow. Yep. He abducts her. He keeps her alive for a week. She is, and this is a terrible list of things, she's beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. Then, October 31st, so this is three, all in October. So far. Yeah. October 31st was a banner day for Ted Bundy. I mean, that's Halloween. Yep. Apparently he was feeling it. Most of us love Halloween for other reasons, but... uh... That's true. (laughs) Good, fun, spooky reasons. Right, exactly. Um... October 31st, Laura Aim vanishes after a Halloween party. He keeps her alive for 20 days. The body's dumped in American Fork Canyon, and she has the same... She gets all the, all the same treatment as Melissa Smith. On that same night, Carol DeRanch. Halloween night. And this is, this is a big one. This one comes back to haunt him, for sure. Okay. So, she's 18 years old. Lured into the car by saying he's a policeman. He comes up to her and tells her that, like, someone someone tried to break in your car. You need to come down to the station with me. She gets in his brown Volkswagen Beetle, which is not what policemen drive when they right, come to get course. someone for a statement. Um, but then during the drive, she points out that they're he- that they're not headed toward the police station. And he instantly pulls over and he tries to handcuff her, right? But he fucks up because she's struggling so hard. Yeah. Like the badass she clearly was at 18 years old. He handcuffs her left hand and then she pulls her right hand out of the way in time where he connects the other handcuff also to her left hand. So he has her handcuffed twice on one (laughs) wrist. And she yanks the door handle, jumps out of the car, takes off. Yeah. She escapes. She actually survives the encounter, right? That's awesome. Yeah. Then, on the same day, after after she escapes, he's not done. I mean, clearly. Yeah. Deborah Kent, 17 years old, is abducted after she leaves a school play. Okay. Students and teachers saw a man pacing around the back of the auditorium. He literally came in during the school play, mm. and he's pacing around looking at people, like trying to find a victim. He abducts her from the parking lot. And takes her to his apartment. He kept her there for a day before strangling her. And now, 
I'm saying kept them for this period of time. Like, they weren't, you know, napping. I mean... It's... I just don't, like... I'm trying to get away from, you know, saying like... Going into super detail during the time, right. Over over and over and over again. I can pretty much assume, as he quote-unquote kept them, what was happening while that was going on. That it's a fucking horror show. Yeah, yeah. This this one just blows my mind, because it's like... It's it's so... And I guess it's par for the course with him at this point, but like, he's so brazen. Like, to actually come into the auditorium... Right. And it's literally 200 witnesses. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, he was, I don't know. He, he had no fear of, and again, anything. I think it's just that feeling of needing, needing that feeling of power or whatever else. Like, yeah. Just riding off of that, like knowing I'm going to go in here and doesn't matter if people see me because I'm going to end up, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's that invincibility feeling that comes with narcissism. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So after this, after five, Jesus Christ, five attempted. Yeah. He tried for five in October and thank God only got four. Yeah. At least one escaped, but three in a day, five in the month. It's like, it's clearly ramping up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and this is the thing you see with serial killers a lot, where it the cooldown period gets shorter and shorter and shorter until you get like a full blown rampage. Yeah, you know. Yeah, of course. Which some might say that October, if he had been successful with all three on Halloween, that would almost be a spree, spree killing. Yep. You know, like yeah. So after this, he he has a cooldown. A fair cooldown period. So he's having some like relationship stuff with Kopfer, who has now who is now convinced that he's responsible for these killings, but somehow still manages to keep a an ongoing relationship with him. I mean, maybe it was odd. his fear of whatever. Yeah, know. it could be. Yeah, which that would make sense. So, yeah, yeah, I think so. Because it's long distance at this point. She's in Washington. He's in Utah. She doesn't hear from him very often. But when she does, she's like amenable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which, yeah, which sort of does make sense. Um, but he doesn't he doesn't kill again until January 12th of 75. So it's like two months with nothing, which is crazy that that feels like a long cool down. I mean, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And at this point, he shifts to Colorado. Um, he kills... Just quickly. January 12th, Karen Campbell. March 15th, Julie Cunningham. April 6th, Denise Oliverson. June 28th, Susan Curtis. Just four right in a row. Right, within the first and, six months, yeah. Yeah, and this whole time, Klopfer is calling the police in Washington saying, like, this dude that I dated is for sure your guy. Mm-hmm. Like, she calls three times over the course of a few months. And just keeps getting brushed off. It's super frustrating. I mean, yeah, that would be. That'd be extremely frustrating. I mean, she's she's yeah. literally like laying it out like this is the guy, come on. And Yeah. It's yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Um and then after all this shit, he gets arrested by happenstance. 
He gets pulled over for looking suspicious. Basically, he's in this neighborhood, in this residential neighborhood. This cop knows that this house, his like it's his buddy's house, and he knows that his buddy and his buddy's wife are on vacation and their teenage daughters are home alone. Mm-hmm. Right? So he's like he drives by every co- a few every couple hours on shift to like yeah. check in and he drives by and he sees this weird car he doesn't recognize sitting in front of the house and a weird dude sitting in the car and he's like I'll just stop and talk to him right and turns his lights on as soon as he turns his lights on Ted Bundy fucking takes off like high speed and he pulls him over in the car he finds a ski mask second ski mask fashioned from pantyhose a crowbar handcuffs trash bags a coil of rope an ice pick and a bunch of other shit. A lot of that looks like burglary items, tools, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not the stuff you want to see coming across your like checkout, right? Yeah, register. Of course, you know what I mean. Yeah. Jeez. Um, and he tries to like Ricky his way out of it, right? <laughs> like he has over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, but there's a detective in in the unit, uh, Jerry Thompson. And he remembers a similar suspect and car description from the derange, the the one that escaped. Yeah. She went straight to the fucking police and reported it, described him, all that stuff. Um, and he recognizes Bundy's name from all the times Clopfer has been calling. I was going to say that that should be like ring a bell right there. Yeah. Then you're yeah. like, oh, and maybe it, she was actually right. Yeah, exactly. So they detain him. They search his apartment. Um, they find a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by the Wildwood Inn, which is a, a place that one girl was abducted from. They also find the program from the high school play where oh, Kent geez. was abducted. Really? Yeah. <laughs> the program. You no, ready I was to just be there pissed watching off? it. That's all I was there for. Right? Yeah. It's coincidence. You ready to be pissed, though? So... They release him because, quote, they didn't have enough evidence. Even though... Like, hello. Yeah. Matches the description of the one escaped girl. Mm -hmm. All the claims from the girlfriend. He has, like, all these little things. A car full of just... A murder kit. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And they're like, nah, not enough. He's probably fine. That's These cops are obsessed with physical evidence. We'll hear this over and over again. Not enough physical evidence. Like, it's all circumstantial. <sighs> yeah. But, like, at a certain point, circumstantial's enough. You know what I mean? Like, I would like to think so. We No one in this country prosecuted a no-body homicide until the 80s. And then they did, and they realized, oh, we can do this. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. You just gotta take the leap and do it. Um... Bundy said that while they were searching his apartments, they missed a a box, a printer paper box filled with Polaroids of his victims. Ah, there it is. Yeah. So he goes home and burns them after they release him. He's like, too close. <laughs> we got to burn this box of photos of corpses. I mean, man. Uh. Yeah. Um, but after they release him, they put him under surveillance. And they went and did an in-person interview with Klopfer. Um, she said that the year before... This, this woman is 
crazy. I, I gotta say. All right. Like, hats off to her for reporting it eventually, but she tells them in the interview that the year before he went to Utah, she found a series of weird shit in his apartment that she that he couldn't explain, that she couldn't make sense of. So, in his apartment, over the course of a year, she finds crutches mm-hmm. when nothing's ever been wrong with him. She I mean, finds nice a bag of in case. I suppose so. She finds a bag of plaster of Paris, you know, for him to make casts for himself. Right, or he's just uh, doing doing some art stuff. Yeah, sure. She finds a meat cleaver that has never been used for cooking that she's never seen him use to cook. Well, she just wasn't like there was, when he had out the meat. Yeah, must have been. Um, she found surgical gloves. I mean, yeah, he's got to keep his hands clean with that meat. And she also found a giant knife in that he kept in his glove box that had blood on it. <laughs> I don't know why he'd keep it in the glove box. Or maybe she like found a giant those cases where he finds roadkill and or she, you know yeah, something suffering giant. and he's got to put it you know put it out of its misery. Yeah, and Jeez. she finds a sack, a sack full of women's clothing. And she just, and she still continues to keep him around. Yeah. Like, I was reading this, like, what in the actual fuck was this woman thinking? I, I don't like, know. I, this series of items really can only, it means one thing and one thing only, and it's your boyfriend is a serial killer. I mean. That's all, yeah. that's it. I think that it'd is, be a pretty fair assumption. Or, at the very least, he's not who you think he is or something really yeah. bad is going on like maybe yeah. not immediately serial killer or whatever i don't know i mean but that yeah I, I i would say serial killer for sure yeah i mean same bag of women's clothing a giant ass knife with blood all over it <laughs> yeah i mean that he keeps in his glove box nonetheless yeah exactly <laughs> where else would you keep it's- it jesus uh, okay. She sounds then, dumb. Yeah, she does sound dumb. Um, and then a break happens because in September, he sells his beetle to to a local college kid, and the cops impound it as soon as it's sold, right? And they rip that car apart, and they find hairs that match three separate victims Okay, in the car. Victims that have never had anything to do with each other. There's no reason why their hairs would all be in the same place, right? Um, so they're like, okay, we're pretty sure it's him now, <laughs> right? Took you that long? <laughs> they're getting there slowly. <laughs> October 2nd, the next month, Yeah. Um, Deranch identifies him in a lineup, okay? And witnesses from the school play ID him. Yeah. Now... At this point, they don't have enough to charge him with the murder of the girl from yeah, the school play. Because there's nothing physical right. yet, right? I mean, even today, but, there, there's lack of evidence. Sure. I mean, you know, you still have to have yeah. some something. Yeah, that ties you there. Right. Um, but they do charge him with the kidnapping of Durange. Um He's released on $15,000 bail, and he moves back in with Klopfer. <laughs> Uh, you silly, silly, silly lady. Yeah. So, since they can't charge him with the murder, they surveil 
right? And Kalopfer talks about, in the interview, she talks about how every time they would walk outside together, so many unmarked police cars would start up that it sounded like the Indy 500. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Right? Yeah, I loved that. Um, So they keep surveilling him while he's waiting for trial for the kidnapping, Mm -hmm. right? In November, um, the three main investigators meet for the first time in Aspen, which is another, like, what-the-fuck moment where you realize how different things were in the 70s, right? Because... This case is being investigated in three separate states by three separate teams, and they're not talking to each other. Well, they just still, right? either one doesn't have jurisdiction in the other. Right. But now there are connected databases where they're all collaborating. I to mean, at find that point, the FBI should have been brought yeah. up. You'd think so, but this is fucking pre Mindhunter. This is like, they're not even digging yeah. into serial killers yet. You know what I mean? Or they're just starting to. Right. Um, but Jerry Thompson from Utah, he's the head of the Utah investigation. Robert Keppel from Washington and Michael Fisher from Colorado. They all get together in Aspen and they agree and that Bundy skiing. is their man. Yeah, exactly. They probably did afterward. They probably did. <laughs> but they they agree that they all think it's Bundy, right? Okay. But... They, they just don't have the physical evidence to get him yet. Right. Um, so, all the way, we fast forward all the way to February of 76, the next year. So, three more months. He finally goes to trial for the kidnapping. And he's convicted. He's sentenced to 1 to 15 years. Yeah? That's quite a... <laughs> quite a range. Yeah. 1 to 15, then, depends. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Then in October of 76, he sits in jail from February to October, and he's then he's caught trying to escape, and he spends three weeks in solitary confinement for it. Okay. Um, so they catch him one later time that month, for trying to escape. Yes. All one right. time. And later that month, in October of 76, Colorado charges him with the murder of Karen Campbell, the first murder that he did in Colorado. And they extradite him to the prison in Aspen. All right. Now, I'm going to read you a full description of his first escape. Okay. Ready for this shit? You were were into the escapes. Yeah. So, get ready. Okay. On June 7th, 1977, Bundy was transported 40 miles from Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. This is about the murder. Right. He had elected to serve as his own attorney and as such was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles. During a recess, he asked to visit the courthouse's law library to research his case. While shielded from his guard's view, behind a bookcase, he opened a window and jumped to the ground from the second story, injuring his right ankle as he landed. After shedding, out, after shedding an outer layer of clothing, Bundy limped through Aspen, as roadblocks were being set up on its outskirts, then hiked south onto Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. The following day, he left the cabin and continued south toward the town of Crested Butte, but became lost in the forest. For two days, he wandered aimlessly on the mountain, missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. On June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake, 10 miles south of Aspen, taking food and a ski parka. 
However, instead of continuing southward, he walked back north toward Aspen, eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way. Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of Aspen Golf Course. Cold, sleep-deprived, and in constant pain from his sprained ankle, Bundy drove back into Aspen, where two police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled him over. He had been a fugitive for six days. In the car were maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Campbell's body, since as his own attorney, Bundy had rights to discovery, indicating that his escape was not a spontaneous act, but had been planned. All right. Yeah. Why, like, why did he keep coming back towards Aspen, first of all? I, I don't I mean, know. If I mean, if I were him, I would just kept going through the forest and just hoped for the yeah, best. Yeah, go south, right? Right. Yeah. Clearly in that, in ski country, you're going to run into cabins like every couple miles. Yeah. At least. Right? Yeah. I think he he wanted to go back up, steal a car, and get to a main highway. I mean, I think that yeah, was his plan. I'm sure it was, but he knew that they but were dude, like setting up barriers and blocks and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. Like, yeah, because he evaded them for almost a week. Yeah, that's dude. It's fucking nuts to escape at, from the courthouse and to make it a week. Yeah, before he gets caught again. That's it's crazy. That is crazy. Well, all right. So obviously he goes back to jail, right? After he's caught. Yeah, I wouldn't think right? they'd just let him off at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Well, you bud. made it six days here. I think we think you deserve it. <laughs> um, second escape. Ready? Yeah. He acquired a detailed floor plan of the Garfield County Jail and a hacksaw blade from other inmates. He further accumulated five hundred dollars in cash, something he later said was smuggled in over a six-month period by visitors. During the evenings, while other prisoners were showering, he sawed a hole about one square foot between the steel-reinforcing bars in his cell's ceiling. Having lost 35 pounds, he was able to wriggle through and explore the crawlspace above, allowing him to make a series of practice runs in the weeks that followed. Multiple reports from an informant of movement within the ceiling during the night were not investigated. (laughs) There's something up there. Nah, we'll leave it. Nah. Forget about it. <laughs> I got better um, things to do. Yeah. It's my nap time. <laughs> um, hey, man, don't mess with me when it's my nap time. That's right. By late 1977, Bundy's impending trial had, had become a cause to celebrate in the small town of Aspen. Bundy filed a motion for a change of venue to Denver. On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted the request, but to Colorado Springs, where juries had historically been hostile to murder suspects. Ah. On the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate his sleeping body, and climbed into the crawl space. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the, of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife. He changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet and walked out of the front door. <laughs> How? After... St- this is... Yeah. Then he steals a car, and he drives east to Glenwood Springs, but the car soon broke down in the mountains on Interstate 70. He chose the wrong a car. A passing motorist... That's true. He definitely uh. did. A, uh, a passing motorist gave him a ride to Vail, Colorado, 60 miles to the east. From there, he caught a bus to Denver, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. Back in Glenwood Springs, the jail's skeleton crew did not discover the escape until noon the next day. 
more than 17 hours later. After he's like already then, in like Chicago and yeah. good lord. Yeah, exactly. He was already in Chicago by the time they found him. And it, from Chicago, he hops a train, then a bus to Tallahassee, Florida. We're, we're, yeah. And Florida gets fucking crazy. He's escaped from prison, right? Yeah. Fully escaped. He's now in Florida. And there's an attack at the Chi Omega sorority house. All right. This, I mean, this is less than a week after he arrives in Tallahassee. Why doesn't he like the, lay low is, or something? Like, yeah, he can't. He can't. <sighs> it's yeah, it's crazy. This guy. And this is like a full blown rampage. He breaks in the back door of the sorority house. Okay. Beginning at about 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman, 21, with a piece of oak firewood as she slept, then garroted her with a nylon stocking. He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious, strangling her, tore one of her nipples, bit deeply into her left buttock, and sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. In an adjoining bedroom, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, 21, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder, and Karen Chandler, 21, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Chandler uh. and Kleiner survived the attack. Kleiner attributed their survival to, an, to automobile headlights illuminating the interior of the room and frightening away the attacker. This entire attack took less than 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah. That's that's insane. Like, yeah. I mean, it must have gotten to the point where, I mean, this is, yeah, something he, like, felt he needed. Like, he was, like, fiending for it, right? Yeah, to be that frantic. Yeah. Yeah. All, dude, all... Th- Imagine, like, the devastating ripples, like, ripple effect of just one of those things that he did in that house. Yeah. Just one of those... Th- and he did all that... In 15 minutes, he changed that many lives forever. Like, it's fucking mind-blowing, dude. Yeah, that really How, is. How, like, destructive a human being can be. Mm-hmm. It's... And he wasn't done. So, the same night, the same night, Cheryl Thomas, he breaks into her basement apartment, attacks her with a broken axe handle, he dislocated her shoulder and fractured her jaw and her skull in five places. Wow. She was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dance career. On Thomas's bed, on her bed, the police find a semen stain and pa- and a pantyhose mask containing two hairs, quote, similar to Bundy's in class and characteristic. Okay. So he's getting frantic. Yeah. Obviously, he's like leaving things behind. He's starting to leave physical evidence. Then February 8th, Kimberly Diane Leach. This one fucks this one fucks me up. Alright. This is just like the just like the youngest victim uh, when we covered Kemper. Yeah. Um so Kimberly Leach was twelve years old. Wow. Yeah. So like full blown content warning here. Um and this is the this one scares me the most. Maybe because I have an eleven year old daughter. Right. Um but also just where it takes place. Ready? So, she was sent to retrieve a forgotten purse in her homeroom at school and vanished. She was stolen straight out of the school. Like, 
I mean, that explains why, you know, well, that's one of the reasons why schools are so locked down these days. Yep. You know, I mean, most schools, you can't even go in until you end, like, the main doors right in the office. Or, right, someone lets you in, yeah. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, absolutely. Lock that shit down. I don't, yeah. That's, That's how I want it. It's, to get into my kid's school, I have to buzz the thing i have to stand there and they don't even go and these people know me you know what i right. mean they, my kids have gone to school at the same school their whole lives but like they don't say like when i buzz they don't come over the intercom and go like hey jordan they go like what do you want basically yeah you know what i mean yeah. like they take it very seriously yeah as they should um yeah um so they found kimberly seven weeks later, partially mummified in a pig harrowing shelter. Jeez. Which, I'm not even sure what that is, but a small farm building. At they least, found her there. right, yeah. Yeah, and she had, you know, the full gamut of horror. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. February 12th, four days after he took her, he he's pulled over and arrested after a fight with a cop. The cop pulls him over and tries to arrest him, and he, like, kicks his leg out and, like, tries to wrestle him for his gun and all that shit. But the guy, like, takes him. Um, Good. And in his car, they find three sets of IDs belonging to female FSU students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen television set. <laughs> they, uh, they also find... Too. Yeah, exactly. They also find his little disguise kit. It's a pair of dark-rimmed non-prescription glasses and a pair of plaid slacks that actually um, matches one of the descriptions given by by one of the, the sorority girls. Ah, okay. So then they have the Florida trial. Because they in Florida, they aren't fucking around. They instantly connect him with what's been going on in the last, you know, yeah. month. Um, and it's... A full-blown media circus. The Florida trial. Like, this is the first one in American history that's like... You know, we grew up when we were really young, it was OJ. Yeah. And then when we were teenagers, it was Casey Anthony. These, like, huge cases that get, all get like, national coverage, Mm -hmm. right? It's fairly common now for for a case to blow up like that. There seems to always be one going on, you know? Yeah, that's true. This was the... This was the first one, the first one ever that was like every minute of it was televised and there were like talking heads on the news discussing the case and all that. Um, During this, he didn't represent himself again, but he completely controlled his defense. He he like was listed as co-counsel. Okay. Um, He refused a plea deal because he wouldn't admit he did any of it in front of the world. That's what he said. Like, I'm not going to admit it in front of cameras and an audience the jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting bundy on july 24th 1979 of the bowman and levy murders three counts of attempted first degree murder for the assaults on kleiner chandler and thomas and two counts of burglary the trial judge edward cohort imposed death sentences for both murder convictions yeah then um, there's a second trial in Orlando for the murder of the 12-year-old girl, yeah. Kimberly Leach. 
Um, he's also found guilty in less than eight hours. On February 10th, 1980, Bundy was sentenced to a third death penalty by electrocution. Um, as the sentence was announced, he stood up in the courtroom and yelled, tell the jury they were wrong. <laughs> like, what a fucking crybaby. Uh, yeah. Again, trash can. Oh, yeah. So he goes to death row. And um, this is where he gets famous, really. Like, he starts inviting people to come and take his confessions and to, you know, talk with him about what being a serial killer is. And he gives, the, he gives, um, he talks through the, I think it's the Gary Ridgeway murders, um, the Green think the green river killer i might be conflating two different ones but he like sort of in a another silence of the lambs reference the way uh he helps clarice solve the the crime you know yeah he he had a little relationship like that with the person who investigated that case and like huh. talked through it with him or whatever yeah um but he he does a lot of these like interviews with investigators and criminologists and authors i mean of course shit like that he's yeah. You know, getting that fame. Yeah. Um, so in one of those interviews, he recounted his career as a thief. He, he talked about the stealing, and he said, the big payoff for me was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. I really enjoyed having something that I had wanted and gone out and taken. Um, possession proved to be an important motive for rape and murder as well. Sexual assault, he said, fulfilled his need to totally possess his victims. Yeah. Just like we said at the very beginning, right? Right. Rape rape isn't about sex. It's about control. Mm -hmm. Um, At first, he killed the victims as a matter of, quote, as a matter of expediency to eliminate the possibility of being caught. Yeah. Right. Um, So at first it was about the sexual assault. It wasn't about the murder. He just did the murder so he wouldn't have to deal with a surviving sexual assault victim. Right. Um, He said, but later murder became part of the adventure. The ultimate possession was, in fact, the taking of the life, and then the physical possession of the remains, which is exactly like you said earlier. Like it just ramped up further and further. Yeah. Like he needed more, a more extreme version. Then, while on death row, there was another attempted escape that was squashed, <laughs> and a few stays of execution. And he talked to lots and lots of people, but. Bundy was executed in the Rayford electric chair at 7.16 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday, January 24th, 1989. His last words were directed to his attorney, Jim Coleman, and Methodist minister Fred Lawrence. He said, quote, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. Really? Yeah. Really. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, it's almost, like, entertaining at that point. Like he's just yeah. putting on a show. I mean, granted, yeah, right, like he, he's being—he knows he's about to go down, in, but but he's being like intentionally, almost sarcastic, right? Yeah, you know what I mean. They're like, give my love to my friends and family. Yeah, like it's like super tool. cheeky, and you know, it, yes, like yeah, just to the point of cheesiness. It's like right, exactly. It's, That's what I mean. Yeah. It's it's like very almost like theatrical, like. Yeah, yeah, just 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 crazy. I mean, that I, there's not many words I have for this other than crazy. Yeah, I mean, 
Do you see what I meant before, like off mic, when I said that even though I generally consider myself against the death penalty, when you hear about when you finally get to him being executed, it's like it has its you're place. a little bit happy about it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agreed, and I've always I've always been that way too. Like you know, but I think uh, I think there are cases where it does definitely have its place. Yeah, I I think I've come around to that recently yeah this is i think a prime example of that yeah absolutely i think there's i think the world is genuinely better without some people in it agreed i think it's a very small group but yeah i think in the most extreme circumstances i think yeah it's it's probably for the greater good i would just i would very much do away with it you know what i think did i yeah I think what really did it for me was Kimberly Leach, the 12-year-old. I mean, that, yeah, that's, honestly, I, yeah, again, I I don't have a lot to, a lot to say in regards to it or in response to it, but I would say he definitely deserved it at that point. Like, granted, I'm, you know, I'm not dismissing any of the other, the other victims, whatever else, but like, that, I mean, I don't know, there's, there's few Honestly, I don't even know if there's any, you know, much, much worse or if there is anything worse than that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely. So, yeah, that's where I'm in. I think, Again, it's like tough to talk about, right? Yeah, it really is. Crimes hit different when the victims are children. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. They do. It's, um, yeah. So I guess the moral of the story is good fucking riddance. A hundred percent. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Such a fucking crazy story, man. So do they at least fry him three it's... times for each count? <laughs> like, all right, we got him once, let's hit him again. And two of those executions actually got stayed. Yeah. Like random courts decided wow. like, no, don't. No. The one he actually got got killed for. The one he actually the sentence that actually went through with the death penalty was Kimberly's. Good. Yeah some semblance of justice yeah. at least i mean as as much as you can get in a case like that exactly yeah man this is it really is hard to talk uh, about yeah it's jesus it God. Is. this is a this is a super super gnarly gnarly case i mean again i know you know at knowing knowing you know a lot about ted bundy and you know a lot of those those types of cases in general yeah. You know, but uh yeah, like really getting into it and learning a lot of things I didn't know is yeah. A lot of things you probably didn't want to know. I mean, of course. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. some things out there that are probably better left just untouched and un- unspoken about. Sure. Yeah. But as we do on this show, we have to talk about them. That's right. The strange and unsettled. Exactly. Cuz it is out there. Not just in yeah, monsters or creepy, for. you know, creepy ghosts or haunted houses. Nope. Could be literally your next door neighbor. Yeah, for real. Which actually, uh, I, mean, I was gonna say, uh, I was gonna mention earlier. I was, but uh, this is completely off topic, and I'm just gonna switch gears for a minute. Um, that's fine. I was watching. Uh, I watched the movie Strays tonight, and it's like this new okay. comedy that has Will Ferrell and a bunch of other comedians in it, and it's uh, just basically about a group of of dogs. Like, I mean, it's of course. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, I've seen the trailer. It's very like. You know, it's very much an adult comedy, right? 
Yeah, but yeah. it has a really good message. But there's one one scene where they're like helping helping one of the dogs go back, like back to their home, and I won't give it away why. Uh, but anyhow, they like come across uh, come upon this carnival, and like one of the dogs walks up to this other dog, and he's like narrating everything that about his owner that's going on. He's like, and then you know, little did she know that she was everything he needed, and blah blah blah, blah. like you know, and and he's like, I hate narration, like narration dogs, and blah blah, blah. like. But the same <laughs> thing is the thing is is when he walks away, this dog, this this dog that's continuing to like narrate what's going on with him, his owner, and this like girl he's met. Yeah, and he's like, and little does she know, he's actually a serial killer, and he's about to take her home and kill her. Oh Christ! <laughs> <laughs> Just like because everything is super positive like when he's doing the narration yeah. you know it just it, it's another one of those things like you never know you never know somebody uh or it's what true, they're man. capable of i mean that somebody that could literally be just uh you know come off as like this great person or whatever else yeah yeah it's crazy and that's I think, what's scary yeah i think like i like i said in the story i think the like the value of of hearing these things you don't really want to hear is maybe it it gives us a chance to learn better how to protect ourselves yeah. from it, right? Yeah, like, like what to, to look like out to for. So. And that's what's really scary about this case. Like we said toward the beginning, like because you're looking for that thing to look out for or like these people had to do something wrong to, they had to make a misstep at some point to be, you know, there had to be a mistake along the way for them to be in the crosshairs right. of a monster. You know what I mean? But, like, there aren't any, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I mean, aside from, you know, men and ladies, but definitely ladies, if a guy tries to get you to come back to his car that you don't know, don't fucking go. Yeah. Just don't do it. And I think maybe it, maybe the rise of true crime as, like, a huge genre in all forms of media is responsible for this, but I think people are way smarter about situations like that now. Oh, agreed. I mean, we've we've seen what happens in a lot of those darker situations, those, you know, those other cases rather that, uh, you know, I think, I think people, people will take that and be a bit more hesitant, you know? Yeah. In those types of cases. Yeah. Yeah, man. But I mean, True crime saves lives. Still, you see somebody like struggling on some crutches or with a broken leg, and I mean, I would I would find it hard enough to try and help somebody. I've been there. I've broken my leg. I've broken bones. Like, yeah, kind of makes I you mean, a little I'd help bit. Them uh, if there's... Uh-huh. <laughs> huh. Well, uh-huh. do I help you and be a dick if I don't? Like, right? Yeah, I. I mean, I'd help them if they were smaller than me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How about that? Yeah. That's, you know, there's a guy who used to play guitar in a band with us. If he was on crutches, I wouldn't help him. (laughs) You know, if I didn't know him, you know what I mean? Like, a guy like that who could just grab you and squeeze you in half if he wanted to. You know what I mean? I used to love when when he would go around, like, popping, popping our backs, like... Cause yeah, just give you a bear <laughs> hug, squeeze like yeah. literally could squeeze the life out of you. The dude is half gorilla. <laughs> he's 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 a massive man. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a guy like that on crutches, he can help himself. Um, I'm just gonna mosey yeah, along. See, like at the same time, 
I could empathize knowing being in that situation before, like, I would want to return the favor, but also, like, you know, I like being a nice guy. I like helping sure. people, but... I understand. The show's going to make management. me just be a terrible person forever. <laughs> or at least, you know, like, more focused on myself. Be more selfish. And alive. Re- and alive, yeah. <laughs> Touche. And alive. That's fair. Don't forget that. And a while back, we, uh, um, for a fireside chat, we had Camelon from... Um, monster mashers podcast that one we had him on a on a fireside chat and he was our drummer when we were a kid a guy like that who needs help sure i'll help <laughs> yeah because you can, like pick him up you and know? just toss him exactly He's a tiny. guy that i could squeeze in half still to this day is I'm tiny. Fine. yes he is yeah <laughs> he's small in stature but makes up for it with a huge personality <laughs> right so of course of course and yeah. a, an enormous all-encompassing personality yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean that's fair. But it yeah. is. It's definitely fair. It's just, I don't know. I, I think I think that's what that's what a lot of this does now is it makes you second second guess or think more about, yeah. you know, just strange situations. Yeah. If the situation and I know, seems like, off, there's it's probably it probably is. Yeah. Exactly. Trust your intuition always. And that concludes episode one seventeen, Ted Bundy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials. At campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Campfire T-O-T-S-A-U on Twitter. And you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at ReverbNation.com slash Reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time. I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers. Stay weird. And and trust trust in the unknown. unknown.